one third of the Bible is poetry, so shouldn't we know how to read it? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Kennedy and Glenn Powell. We've been going through a series on the major literary genres in the Bible, and we've already taken a look at apocalyptic literature, wisdom, and historical narrative. So today we're going to say just a few words about poetry in the Bible. I'm not sure if it's because I'm a male or maybe because I'm fairly analytical or, or what, but I feel like I sometimes struggle to connect with the Bible's poetry. I, I often find myself preferring to read the narratives or the letters or some sort of literature that I can kind of dive into and unpack and parse. Um, but this is kind of a problem because after historical narrative, poetry is actually the most common type of literature across the scriptures. We don't talk about it enough within the church, but reading poetry well is a pretty major part of reading the Bible well. Yeah, Alex, uh, thank you for your uh, candid confession that poetry <laughs> is not exactly your cup of tea. And I suspect that a number of our listeners resonate with that. And uh, maybe there's actually some who are thinking right now, you know, if these guys are going to sit around and talk about poetry for a half an hour, you know, I'm out. Uh, but I, I encourage you to stay with us. Um, as Alex referenced, you know, about two thirds of the First Testament is poetic in nature. And if we are people who aspire to immerse ourselves and take advantage of the spirit's full gift, then we're going to want to develop an appetite for Hebrew poetry. Um, and the truth is that we need poetic expression um, in our lives, uh, like we need other forms of beauty. So, for example, you know, how would the world have been impacted by Psalm 23 if it was written, you know, as prose? Mm. If it had started out with like the character of God um, is analogous to that of a, a Middle Eastern shepherd. <laughs> Versus, you know, the achingly beautiful, yeah. uh, the Lord is my shepherd, mm, I shall yep. not want. So, yeah, you know, the narrative form, yeah, yeah, the narrative form is destined for oblivion and uh, the poetic form goes on and on. So yep. um, I, I, one thing, you know, and I don't know if it'll come up in our conversation, but it seems to me that that Hebrew poetry um, is designed to be deep. Uh, but not obscure, like like some forms of poetry. Mm, uh, yeah, it's a good so, point. You know, some modern poetry is, you know, designed to leave you just shaking your head, and and you never you never really do catch on. But Hebrew poetry is different, and it's it's deep calling to deep. So let's dive in. Um, there's actually several kinds of poetry in the Bible. So even poetry isn't one dimensional. Um, but they, they they share common features, as we're going to see. So earlier in this series, we looked at the wisdom books, which actually contain a lot of poetry. So you have the short, punchy two-line sayings from Proverbs. You have the free verse of Ecclesiastes, and then these long dialogues of Job. They're all poetic in nature. Uh, but for today, we're going to focus on the two most common uh, types of poetry within the Bible, which are songs and uh, prophetic oracles. So the book of Psalms is uh, a collection of Israel's worship songs. 
And then you have the collected works of Israel's prophets uh, that make up the key way that God chooses to speak his messages to his covenant people in, in their darkest hour. And it's, it's really kind of remarkable that these books are almost entirely poetic in nature. Um, you know, God wanting to send a warning to people. And he sends it via a poetic form. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think our understanding of these messages are going to grow deeper um, as we see how these poetry books work. And let's announce it at the beginning. The spirit is poetic. Yeah, there you <laughs> uh, the, go. The spirit is a poet. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the Bible makes full use of this very special and artistic form of writing. Yeah. Okay. So I think the the first question has to be, well, what makes poetry special? I mean, what does poetry do that other kinds of ancient literature, you know, can't do or won't do? Um, what, why did so many biblical authors use poems to carry their messages? And this kind of goes back to our key point of this entire series that we're doing on literary genres in the Bible. It's based on the idea that different kinds of literature do different things well. So the right medium, in this case, the right kind of writing or literature, can make all the difference in the success of the Bible's communication. Prose writing can explain or clarify, it can teach or tell stories, but poetry has its own kind of power. It moves us emotionally, and its creativity can surprise and delight us, or when necessary, deeply convict us. So that's that's the first thing I think that has to be said is that um, it's this a new emotional kind of writing, especially uh, another key feature in poetry is the extensive use of metaphors and comparisons. This use of language helps us not merely, but to feel it. So experiencing God's tender care is like a mother hen reaching out her wings to shelter her chicks. Wrath is like a grape being crushed in a wine press. It's juice pouring out like blood. Metaphors take truth to a deeper level kind of within us or inside of us. Yeah. So I think just for a quick example here, we can look at some lines from the book of Lamentations, which I think we've talked about before on this mm -hmm. podcast, which is made up of five songs of lament after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And this is an example of where the biblical authors could have chosen prose to just straightforwardly describe what happened you know hey so the army of babylon came they surrounded the city they breached the walls they killed a lot of people they tore down the temple um but lamentations isn't really trying to narrate the events of of what happened it's its songs are really for evoking this pain of the the loss or these kind of wounded and destitute survivors so they're giving kind of an emotional voice to their cry to God. And this is something that only poetry can do, right? Like, so, so in this instance, the city is personified as a young woman, uh, daughter Jerusalem, who speaks her pain. So this is what it says. He has sent fire from heaven that burns in my bones. He has placed a trap in my path and turned me back. He has left me devastated, racked with sickness all day long. He wove my sins into ropes to hitch me to a yoke of captivity. The Lord sapped my strength and turned me over to my enemies. I'm helpless in their hands. 
Yeah, that'll uh, that'll penetrate, you know, our hard exteriors. And uh, this is a fire that burns in my bones. The woman sings, Jerusalem sings. Uh, so this is a trap. Um, we're stuck in our tracks. We can't go forward. We can't go backward. Um, it's a sickness that has absolutely ruined us. Our sins have been kind of woven into a rope that leads us to bondage. Man, I had to stop at that one, guys. I mean, mm. you know, the, the theologians are, what is sin? You know, sin is missing the mark, you know. Okay, right. Thank you. Right. We've heard that a thousand times. But what about this one? You know, he wove my sins into a rope to hitch me to a yoke of activity. We got, we got to get some preachers to preach on that one. Yeah, um, that's right. And uh, so anyhow, these amazing words combined leave us helpless in our hurt. So poetry does wonders with, with words. It uses them with skill and precision to do its work. Um, it can carry our thoughts or speak to our hearts like nothing else can. You know, oh, that I had wings like a dove that I would fly away and uh, be at rest, you know, versus like, man, I got to get out of here. Um, <laughs> and so this is why Israel's saddest prayers for longing and uh, their most exuberant outbursts of praise, they're all in poems that are put to music. And, and this is why these desperate warnings and pleadings of Israel's prophets all come invade through poetry and poetry slows us down, makes us listen more attentively um, to what the words are doing. Yep. And I think another, just kind of along these uh, introductory comments, we need to note that Israel's poetry was unique in the ancient world, very different from, say, the Greek form, which, like so much poetry that followed um, all the way into the modern world, was based primarily on meter and rhyme. So Hebrew poetry has instead a different building block, the parallel two-line couplet. Although there is often wordplay of some kind in biblical poetry, these poems are not trying to rhyme words. And although there seems to be a kind of cadence now and then, there's no consistent rhythmic pattern either. Rather, parallelism is the key thing for Bible readers to be aware of. One of the keys to reading the Bible's poetry well is to always pay close attention to how these two, or in some cases, three lines are working together. The first line will state something, and then the next line will repeat it or restate it in some way that often intensifies or extends its meaning. Jewish literary critic Robert Alter, who we heard about last time in our session on biblical narrative, gives us an example of how even more, excuse me, even mere literal repetition can intensify or deepen meaning. He gives this example. Think of the line, say your goodbye, soldier, say your goodbye. The repeated phrase means more the second time. It carries an added gravity. This really is goodbye, soldier. So the, the repetition of that line brings home the point in an even stronger way. And this is why repetition is such a key and common tool for biblical poetry. Sometimes, however, the second or third line will qualify or talk back to the first line by stating a contrast. Think of this one. I cried out for you to listen, to come down and save me, but you would not. 
by together working these things out in, in this kind of parallel series, meaning is either heightened, made more specific, or clarified. So it's always got to be the first step of reading biblical poetry well, is like reading the lines as individual lines and then noticing, taking note of what are they doing to each other? How are they interacting? That's good, Glenn. Hey, uh, let's let's um, get under the hood and and tinker a little bit further with this kind of poetic engine, if you will. And so one more feature that we want to mention is that of the stanza. So the wisdom proverbs, they're standalone two-liners, but the Bible's songs and these prophetic oracles are built of bigger gathered units of parallel lines, and we call them stanzas. And as we're going to see in a minute, these stanzas are oftentimes intentionally built by the authors. They're joined by common themes or you know, even by numbering of the lines. And this is amazing creativity at every level. The, the word choices that kind of explode in our minds, the line combinations, the stanza construction, parallel couplets joined together with other couplets make stanzas. You know, while stanzas joined together, make a full poem, either uh, a song or an oracle. So as our uh, British friends across the pond would say, this is brilliant. Mm-hmm. They would say brilliant or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it should go without saying that good Bible translating and good Bible publishing will pay attention uh, to all of these, and they'll reflect these parallel lines of poetry and the structures of the stanza. So, you know, we don't think of this when we read, but line breaks matter. Spaces between stanzas are crucial. And as we've mentioned on this podcast before, a two-column Bible makes all of this nearly impossible to follow because the, pop, the, the columns, are, they're just too narrow for an entire line of poetry. And so a single line gets split into two lines and, you know, the neat poetry uh, becomes kind of a mess of indents. So single column Bibles are the way to go for readers to easily see this on the page. And uh, dare we say that our immersed Bible is uh, especially attuned to these features and to make sure that um, readers can immediately recognize what these uh, amazing biblical poets are up to. The, the Immersed Bible, which I'll just add, is, of course, the Bible of the year in 2022. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Wow. I, I was trying to be um, reserved. But yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. You just you got to put it out there, right? It's it's yeah. like our Super Bowl. So we, yeah. we won. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So cool. So so let's um, go ahead and dive into some examples here. And we're going to start with the Bible's prophecy, their prophetic oracles. So if you have a copy of Immersed Prophets, you have probably realized that it's kind of the thickest, fattest volume in the set. And nearly all of it is poetry. So we see this theme throughout where the prophets of Yahweh are bringing a covenant lawsuit against Israel. There was supposed to be this binding agreement, right, between God and his people, where he was the great king and they were his subjects. 
he was the husband, Israel was his bride. And this commitment was supposed to be strong and continuous and everlasting on both sides and reflected in the lives and the actions of each party. But of course, as we know, in the biblical narrative, one side had quite a bit of trouble keeping up with, uh, with their side of the covenant. So this is what the prophets are up to. And we see Jeremiah carrying these poetic, prophetic, prophetic messages from the Lord to his people. So early in his collection of oracles, Jeremiah urges Israel to return and turn around, come back to Yahweh in repentance and renewed faithfulness. And he says this about Yahweh recounting his original purpose for this relationship. I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. I looked forward to your calling me father, and I wanted you never to turn from me. So we see these parallel lines, which admittedly, if you're listening to this, it it might be a little bit hard to follow because you're just listening. But if you're looking at the lines themselves, these parallel lines are just really trying to create meaning. So first, God has given these people this beautiful land. And we hear that, in fact, it's the finest land in all the world. And the Lord wants his children calling out to their father, never turning away. He wants to be family with his chosen people and then family with the entire world. It's what the creation was made for. And we, we see kind of the, the longing in these words almost. This is, what mm. I, this is what I had been trying to do from the beginning. Um, to make this home for my family, a place that that God could live together with with his people. Yeah. So in Jeremiah, that's all kind of a setup for the message that he's now bringing. I mean, to speak of Yahweh's longing in the beginning, this makes it all the more tragic about Israel's present place. So Israel is not listening to Yahweh's pleading. Israel won't bend to his discipline. So Jeremiah has to bring up a new and painful topic, warning of coming destruction. The descriptions are not in prose or lists of propositions or matter-of-fact statements. The disaster to be is set to poetry. It hurts him to do so, but Jeremiah sadly begins to sound the alarm. Run for your lives. Flee to the fortified cities. Raise a signal flag as a warning for Jerusalem. Flee now, do not delay, for I am bringing terrible destruction upon you from the north. A lion stalks from its den, a destroyer of nations. It has left its lair and is heading your way. It's going to devastate your land. So this is not just a statement about a foreign army coming your way from a certain direction. This is a lion stalking you with destructive intent. The poetic message and metaphor is more powerful, more personal, and conveys the consequences with more strength and urgency. So this is what poetry does. It serves the message in a unique way that prose just could not do. Yeah, so look, look where this leads now. Yahweh desires a family, so he gets his family. But now he says of them, they are stupid children. Whoa. Yeah, who have no understanding. They're clever enough at doing wrong, but they have no idea how to do right. Um, This is what poetry does. It brings out the harshness of a father 
saying to his this to his own own children. It's uh, it's not easy being God, mm. um, but because of their complete foolishness, notice what he says. Um, and, and as I read this, see if if you resonate, if you hear an echo in this in, in Jeremiah's words. I looked at the earth, and it was empty and formless. I looked at the heavens. There was no light. I looked at the mountains and the hills, and they trembled and shook. I looked, and all the people were gone. All the birds of the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fertile lands had become a wilderness. The towns lay in ruins, crushed by the Lord's fierce anger. So this is really remarkable. Um, Jeremiah's verse here carries these very strong echoes. I think you heard it of the Bible's opening creation story but now in devastating reverse. And so the earth, which was carefully formed and put in order, it's going backwards to its original emptiness and chaos. There's going to be no lights in the skies, day or night. Um, the elements of the land are trembling and shaking, and all of the intended flourishing life, but the plants, the fields, the people, the animals, it's all disappeared. And in short, it's no more. And God looked over all that he made and saw that it was very good. That, that's gone. It's, it's, uh, the, the plan has, has been upset by Israel's breaking of the covenant. And there's ruinous, ruination and nothingness. And so the message of this awful poem, <laughs> I think it's right to describe it in that way as an awful poem, is that sin undoes. God's good world, and it uncreates everything. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's powerful in and of itself. But when we connect it to other parts of the story, when we tune into echoes like this, I think it adds this extra layer of meaning. So, so yeah, that's that's kind of what we see here, right? The consequences of the choices of God's people could not be greater in this circumstance than Jeremiah. So. There's one final set of parallel lines that brings home the point. The earth will mourn and the heavens will be draped in black. So this is kind of just how the prophets use poetry. They, they want it to have emotional kind of visualized impact. So let's go ahead and turn to the way that Israel's singers use poetry to craft their songs to Yahweh. We've already seen how the two-line parallelism of the Bible's poetry enhances meaning which will, of course, continue in Israel's songbook. But here we want to highlight another feature, which is actually the architecture of the stanzas. And when you think of uh, maybe you've got a friend who's an architect and maybe you've got a friend that's a poet and maybe they're <laughs> nothing alike because <laughs> those two ideas don't usually uh, really go together. But um, it's, it's kind of an appropriate blend when it comes to the poetry mm. in the Bible because there is an actual architecture and a design and a building element to the poetry of the Bible. Okay. So there are many examples of this actually in the Psalms, and they're not all exactly of the same type. So stanzas of lament, which is the single biggest category of Psalm in the book of Psalms, typically follow this pattern, an opening cry to Yahweh for help, a description of the distress a protest of innocence, or if necessary, a confession of sin, uh, then indictments of the author's enemies, 
And then confident words that Yahweh will help. And then closing words of praise when he does, or vows of future praise when he finally does help. I love that. Um, those Psalms of Lament that say, well, you haven't done it yet, but I know you're going to. So when you do, then I will praise you for yeah. what you have done. So yeah. it's this total, you know, hopeful faithfulness that God is going to do what he needs to do. And then they will bring the words of praise. That's just a very great way to look at, at life, mm. I think. So stanza construction can cover everything from simple opening or closing, single statements of themes or conclusions. You can see that in a lot of Psalms. The progression of a theme over the course of the poem, or a highlighted couplet that oftentimes stands alone in the very center of a poem. All of this is meant to highlight or strengthen these core messages of what the poem is about. These are all things we should kind of be on the lookout for when you're reading poetry, especially, of course, as we said, in your single column Bible. But today we want to look more closely at specifically Psalm 44, which uses stanza construction in a very unique way. Psalm 44 is a strong cry for Yahweh to show up and start helping his people. But this song doesn't follow the usual form of laments. Instead, it slowly and carefully builds its case by matching its message very closely to the length of its stanzas. Okay, so I'm going to take a shot at, uh, at how this works. Uh, I don't know why you guys put my name on this. I'm the most <laughs> unarchitectural un uh, person in the group, but I, I'll take a shot and you guys can, can jump in. So, you know, as background first, it's, it's worth knowing something about ziggurats uh, in the Bible, which were mountain-shaped worship centers uh, in the ancient Near East. And they were kind of a, a stepped pyramid that had a sanctuary or an altar at the very top. And they were created to look like mountains or high places. And they, were, they, they thought of this as a place where they could be closer to the realm of the gods. So there's a, a Dutch uh, First Testament scholar by the name of N.H. Ritterboss who noticed in his study that the stanzas of Psalm 44 seem to match the shape of a ziggurat. And uh, its, its four stanzas get progressively shorter. So from 10 pairs of lines, then eight pairs of lines, six pairs of lines, and then a final four shaped like a ziggurat. And the themes of the stanzas are all about building a good case and urging God to act immediately on behalf of his people. So the opening 10-part stanza recounts God's ancient love for Israel and how he had powerfully acted in the past to rescue them and defeating their enemies. And then moving up a level, there's the second eight-part stanza, and it details the troubles that Israel is currently in. They're being slaughtered in battle, and now they're the butt of their enemies' jokes. And then we move up another level. The six-part third stanza claims Israel's covenant innocent. God, you have no reason to be punishing us. And then at the very top of the poetic ziggurat, there's a four-part final stanza and uh, the poet is now closer to God, and he desperately cries out, wake up, Lord, why are you sleeping? Get up and help us. So in this 
um, really stunning poetic ziggurat. <laughs> we read that God is capable. We're in trouble, but he's ignoring us, even though we've been faithfully following his ways. So, uh, Lord, it's time for you to rise up and get to work. And, you know, an even closer look at the content of each stanza <laughs> reveals even more, you know, architectural brilliance, because each is made up of, of two sections. So it goes like this. Um, the structure of section five has five lines moving up a level. Structure four has four lines. Structure three has three lines. And yeah, structure two has two lines. And someone who's paying close attention um, to this will see that this author uh, was very intentional. And there's two-line parallelism throughout, but the overall form of the psalm gives its content, you know, even more help. And the ziggurat shape helps the reader to see what's going on and thereby invites them, the reader, to climb these steps alongside the author. And at the very top, to carry a desperate prayer um, to the Lord. So this is amazing stuff. The spirit is, you know, as we've said, is not just a poet. Yeah. The spirit is also an architect and, and a designer. And, you know, honestly, we hear a lot of this. You know, I'm, I'm more of a New Testament guy. Well, if you are, you're going to miss out on this. Or I'm a red-letter Christian. Well, that, that's good. But some of the richest stuff is in this First Testament. And uh, who knows, the spirit may be offended if we ignore these, these rich gifts. Yeah. If, if you're like me, I kind of, when I heard about this idea, I thought, oh, well, that's pretty remarkable. I looked up in my Bible to see if it was actually like showing that. And I found that it was kind of mixed, actually. Um, so translation committees, sometimes they're more tuned into this kind of stanza architecture you know, in some cases more, some cases less. So you might not see this exactly reflected. I noticed in several different translations, it's there in some, and it's not always there in others. So I think we need to be careful. And I think it's kind of a cool thing, actually, for readers of the Bible. You know, if you, if you have a reader's Bible or a single column Bible, which is the best way to read poetry, because you can really see what's going on. Um, kind of read for yourself. And I think it's kind of a neat thing to do, actually, because the fact is the structure will, in fact, match the content. So you can read Psalm 44 and say, wow, there's this long opening section about how God was always there for us in the past. And it's this long, and you can kind of see that. And then hopefully there's a stanza break that says, okay, now we're up to the next section. And it's telling us, look, God, this is the trouble we're in right now. So it moves into the present and it's a little bit shorter. And so if you're just reading content, that will be a hint to you that there should be structure breaks there that your translation may or may not reflect. But as a reader, at least if you're tuned into this, I would say, hey, take the liberty to kind of maybe write out that psalm, write it the way you're reading it, kind of with an awareness of this poetic architecture, which is a real thing. Everybody agrees. It's just a matter of where you see it and if you're kind of tuned into looking for it. Um, but it's a way of helping us um, experience what's there. I mean, actually, I think it's a way of joining the author on a journey to the top in the case of Psalm 44. So you're, you're, you're ending up right in God's room, if you will, and 
semi yelling at him to wake up. I mean, the language at the end is so strong. Mm. It's like, it's like a, a mother going into her teenager's room, like, wake up. Why are you sleeping? You need to get up now and get to work. That's the way that Psalm ends. And the power is enhanced if you've been building up to it the way Psalm 44 does. Mm. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, we like to harp on this in, in this podcast and in our work that form and content work together. Mm, and always. Th- this could be like the prime example of it is, is Hebrew poetry where there's craftsmanship at the word level, at the sentence level, and then also at the structural level. And so we need to pay attention to all three of those. Okay, so we've gone through quite a bit, I would say. So it might be helpful to just return and summarize a little bit, maybe three main points of what we talked about today. I think there's three main rules. Let's go through them real quick. Number one is to just watch closely for what parallel lines are doing. So notice how the second or third lines of of the parallelism are interacting with that first line that really sets the tone for, for what that's about. Number two is to reflect on the metaphors and the imagery that are used and put yourself into the position of the original audience and and ask how this would make you feel if you were in their shoes or their sandals, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. Number three, pay attention to stanzas, everything from their themes as part of the overall poem to also their number of lines and ask yourself, is there an architecture in this poem um, that the author is using to build or to to highlight something. And then I'll also add just this one tip that I heard once, and I, I think it's worth sharing. So if you're reading the Psalms and you come across one that doesn't feel like it really resonates with your current situation, so maybe you read a Psalm of Lament uh, for our hardship and suffering, and you're kind of in a pretty good place right now. You're in the midst of a season of fruitfulness and, and joyfulness. Um, you can not just skip over that one and say, oh, yeah, that one's not for me today. Uh, you can pray that psalm and reflect on it on behalf of somebody else. So maybe you know somebody that's going through a difficult time or maybe, I mean, just open up a newspaper and uh, and you'll see news about a group of people that's suffering or in hardship. And you can use the words of that psalm and uh. pray on their behalf and pray for them. Um, So it's not just necessarily an exercise of kind of combing through the Psalms and figuring out which ones apply to your emotional state that day, but you can, you can use each one to um, pray on behalf of somebody else also. Wow. That that's a big point, Alex. And I'll just say, I think we often do it in reverse and we don't even realize it. We're asking people who are in a season of hurt or loss or disappointment we ask them all the time to join in to us when we're singing songs of joyful praise. Right. And um, so mm. I think that's, that's the idea is look, we're in a community and it's not just about me. It's like where others hurt, I hurt and where others are joyful, I can be thankful with them. And so um, we transcend ourselves. We don't just have this isolated relationship with God. So I think what you're saying is really important. Like let's enter into Psalms of all types because we're part of a community that is experiencing different things. And we join in with those, um, whether they have great joy or whether they are in a season of grief, we're with them. And so we can sing or say these words as part of a community. um, And it's not just always about individualism. Yeah. All right. So now 
just to bring the whole kind of, since this is our concluding entry in the series on literary genres, um, let's just kind of bring this whole thing kind of together. As with the other kinds of writing that we've explored, I think the overall takeaway for Bible readers is to always be attentive to what the literature of the Bible is doing. What is the symbolism of this apocalypse referring to? Or what life wisdom am I learning from this wisdom book? What narrative art do I find in this story? And how is that shaping the message or the recounting of that history? And finally, am I appreciating how this poetry is working? Am I paying good attention to the interaction of the lines, to the shape of the stanzas? And the big idea, I think, is slow and careful reading is what biblical literature calls for. Not rushing to get to some moral lesson or some distilled doctrinal point. Um, although there's certainly moral lessons and there's certainly teaching and doctrine that will come out of the Bible, but we're not rushing to get to those things. We're letting the literature do what it wants to do. So we follow it, we listen to it, and we learn from it as literature. There is profound revelation just in these forms of writing. Remember, the Spirit inspired them all as just the right vehicle to carry this particular divine truth. And don't forget, with literature, it's never one and done. There's always more to return to and see, more to learn, more opportunity to grow. That's one of the great things about the variety of literature that's in the Bible, is that you can go back to it more than one time and see new things. And it's, it's a form of art. I mean, literature mm -hmm. is a form of art, and you're never done with a piece of art. You can always see more, hear more, learn more. And there's depth there, which is really one of the great gifts of the scriptures is that there's so much depth. And when you, when you look at it again, you see new things. And so, um, again, uh, we're never just one and done with any part of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So as Glenn just mentioned, uh, this does wrap up our little series here on the Bible's literature. And I think from my standpoint, the main takeaway of this little series is there's that little quip we sometimes hear, just read the Bible and do what it says. You know, it's not that hard. Um, but that's just not quite adequate, I don't think. You know, how do you just read a psalm and do what it says? Or how do we read the narratives of Israel's up and down kings and just apply it? Um, so instead, I think we need to read the Bible and honor its literature. Like Glenn just said, we need to let the poetry and the narrative and the apocalypse just do what they're meant to do in us and in our lives. And I think there's a real beauty and a real power in the variety that can, that can shape us and mold us more than just read it, apply it, read it, apply it. So I think that's my main takeaway from, from this series is to just know what kind of literature you're reading and what it's trying to do in the overall canon of the Bible. Mm. All right. Well, Hopefully this little series on, on the literature has been helpful to you. If you'd like to help more people find the Bible Reset podcast, you can go ahead and leave a rating and review on your podcast app, or you can share one of your favorite episodes on social media or email it to your friend of yours, whatever. Uh, you can find links to all episodes at instituteforbiblereading.org slash podcast. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next one.